This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum. My name is Judy Palfrey, and I'm the director of the Global Pediatrics Program in the Department of Medicine at the Boston Children's Hospital. This presentation is one of a series of forums focusing on common child health problems in the global setting. HIV infections remain one of those challenges around the world. We have the great good fortune now to hear from Dr. Rana Chakraborty, who is professor of the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. He's also the medical director of the Ponce Family Youth Clinic under the Grady Health Systems in Atlanta, Georgia. Also, he recently served as the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on HIV. Welcome, Dr. Chakraborty. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Judy. Rana, you've dedicated much of your life to the prevention and the care of people with HIV. Talk to us a little bit about what were the early influences in your life? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I think the first effect was sort of as a medical student going on elective in Velour, South India. Um, I was managing a 50-year-old adult patient with AIDS. His worsening respiratory status at the time was attributed to pulmonary tuberculosis. But there was a 16-year-old wife in the room and she was about eight months pregnant. There was also a playful two-year-old son. They both kind of left a real lasting impression on me. And so I discussed the case um, with a senior house officer and he told me that um, speaking with the virologist, there were 200 known cases of HIV infection, and that was in a town of about 200,000 inhabitants. And then I discussed sort of the issues around disclosure to the patient's wife of, the, of his underlying HIV status, uh, both testing her and the, that playful two-year-old child for HIV, and also what measures we could implement to prevent trans HIV transmission to the unborn fetus. But I was met with silence. And that was in 1990. After that, a few years later, I actually went on and commenced residency training in pediatrics at the Bronx Lebanon Hospital Center between 1993 and 95. And in the preceding years, and during those years, the South Bronx had been as you may know, had been markedly affected by the HIV epidemic. And this was apparent uh, with HIV causing more than 60% of inpatient morbidity. And so while training, I cared for many patients with complicated infectious diseases, but really none proved more challenging than the infants, children, adolescents, and families with or affected by HIV infection. But it was during residency that that third question just kept coming back to me from that experience in India three years earlier. What measures could we implement to prevent HIV transmission 
to the unborn fetus. Also note that in RNICU, we had estimated about 5 to 10% of infants were born exposed to HIV. A few years earlier, during residency, we had managed to sort of uh, learn a little bit more, not only from some of the lay media, but the medical, uh, medical journals that were available. And we knew that one in four HIV-infected mothers transmitted HIV to the infants in the United States, that most infections occurred through transmission from mother to child, although the timing was unclear at the time, and that by the 1990s, early 1990s, about 16,000 uh, infants and children were perinatally infected in the US and that there was a real critical need to try and prevent. And this also played out in terms of disease progression. And there was some startling data that came out from Gwendolyn Scott's group. She worked in Miami. Uh, and she sort of demonstrated in a New England paper looking at survival and she's, uh, the conclusion in her cohort was that in the absence of treatment, uh, pediatric HIV infection in the United States was associated with, you know, really startling disease progression with about 25% of children dying by age two. So that was the background. Uh, Judy, something incredible happened. I, I call it incredible, halfway through my through residency. The hospital where I worked at, Bronx Lebanon, was chosen as part of a, a PACTG 076 site. I have to interrupt you. The number 076 just rings a positive bell in pediatrics. And you're going to tell us why. I am. And it, it's, it, I just felt so privileged to have been able to witness that as a resident because I remember our attending sort of uh, telling me and a group of residents around about early March 94 about the importance of the results generated and that we had for the first time an evidence-based intervention that could prevent mother-to-child transmission and that sort of helped put at least partial closure on that question that had been bugging me from that experience in India. So I want to tell you a little bit more about that trial and its implications, particularly in, uh, particularly in addressing that question, and where we've moved on uh, in, uh, in terms of our understanding. So about 076, uh, at the time, the intervention involved giving uh, oral zidovudine uh, to pregnant mothers, and then providing intravenous zidovudine uh, around the time of delivery, and then providing uh, oral zidovudine to newborns as postnatal prophylaxis. And the remarkable thing that was shown by uh, the group uh, was that compared to the, uh, the placebo, the rates of transmission dropped significantly to just 8.3%. And so for the first time, in medicine, we were able to de the group were able to demonstrate treatment as prevention, and so the DSMB had stopped the study, and 
uh, the paper was very shortly published, I think, um, in, in the New England Journal. And with that, a number of health departments, including the New York State Department of Health, went about uh, implementing these interventions to prevent transmission. Now, there were also other questions in terms of the timing, and that was obviously uh, quite important. But with a 67% reduction, um, it was really critical to put in the components that were going to be able to make a difference throughout the United States and also other Western settings. Now, just quickly looking at the, uh, a few questions around the timing, Athena Curtis and uh, Andre Namias working in uh, Atlanta had sort of uh, suggested that a lot of the uh, transmission events uh, took place around the time of labor and delivery. And that's perhaps why it was important to give intravenous cytobidine uh, to the mum uh, at that time. But there were also estimates from Ruth and Dwati's group working out in Nairobi about the significant contribution of breastfeeding uh, in mother-to-child transmission of HIV. But coming back to the US, the AAP and the CDC immediately expanded recommendations for selective testing of high-risk groups to voluntary routine testing of all pregnant women in the United States. And really testing is really very much the platform upon which we develop uh, our other interventions around. And then following that, the Institute of Medicine um, from following from the AAP and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they recommended universal routine opt-out testing with patient notification, which meant really that HIV testing was given and said unless the uh, expectant mother specifically indicated that she didn't want an HIV test. So what other interventions have there been? And, and I'd really like to ask you a little bit about the role of cesarean section as you're talking about the transmission at the time of birth. So this is again specific to the United States and Western Europe and we'll, we'll talk about uh, other interventions um, outside uh, uh, the West uh, halfway through the talk. But the there was some evidence that came in from the European Collaborative Study, and that was published in The Lancet in 1999. And they, as you can see in, in, in the uh, graph here, uh, when there was no prophylaxis and no cesarean section, the rates were up there at 20% with vaginal delivery. Elective C-section dropped that rate by fivefold. But if you had that combination of both cytovidine and an elective C-section, your rates of transmission went all the way down to 1%. And again, this was really heart-rendering heart um, to, to actually see that, that we were really, within the space of just six years or so, we could even get to those kinds of numbers. The excitement of 076 and the understanding of what was happening uh, from this incredibly devastating disease, uh, those were really important. Uh, uh, things that happened and the idea of, of maternal-to-child 
transmission became a call to people. But uh, what are the primary risks for... Uh, and, and it's important to get into the science. These interventions were great. Um, oftentimes they were uh, led by uh, what we knew scientifically. But at that time, we didn't have enough of a grip on pathogenesis. Um, and so some of the evidence came a little after the interventions had already been put in. Uh, and the first bits really sort of came in from three settings, from the US, from the UK, uh, and also from Thailand, where uh, we sort of uh, investigators sort of demonstrated again in 1999, the higher your viral load, the more likely you were to transmit a virus so that they, when they stratified above a viral load of 93,000. And viral load is sort of a number of viruses you can count by uh, PCR technology for every drop of blood. And that the higher this value was, the more likely the transmission rates uh, from this particular graph go up to about 40%. In contrast, when your viral load was under 10,000, your rates of transmission dropped pretty significantly. And then uh, Ellen Cooper, working here in Boston, um, but working uh, through the WITS study, really elegantly demonstrated, uh, again, the effects of high viral load and the rates of uh, transmission, which went up significantly. So when, when the vir virus was very, very high and there was no antiretroviral uh, therapy provided antenatally to the mother, she was more likely to transmit. Uh, to the to the newborn, and then uh, the in in the UK, Claire Townsend and colleagues looked at over four and a half thousand women between uh, five years uh, five over a five year time period, and again with viral loads um, this time greater than ten thousand copies, again you were more likely to transmit. But if you look closely here, when mums had an undetectable viral load, your rates dropped even beneath one percent to just. 0.1%. Contrast that to where we were back in 1992, and the progress has, has sort of been tremendous. So explain a little bit more how these antiretrovirals are bringing that load down and how it's working with the maternal-to-child uh, transmission. Um, and how do they work actually during the pregnancy of the mother before, before the delivery? Uh, again, this is sort of very emerging evidence, but sort of the viral, the viral load was key uh, and probably the most important mechanism. That the, the, the key thing was to drop maternal viral load. But there are a couple of other mechanisms that uh, we think are also coming into play. Um, so these two mechanisms we think are, I think, called pre-exposure prophylaxis. So uh, that uh, the drugs are actually crossing over the placenta uh, and almost prepping the baby so that if virus does cross, then at least you've got anti uh, concentrate, a good concentration of antiretroviral drugs in the cord blood, which is likely uh, to care, take account of any virus that crosses. And then of obviously through post-exposure prophylaxis of the infant, um, if you continue to give medication and the recommendations in the US are to provide um, zidovudine prophylaxis at a minimum for four to six weeks. 
As part of the intrapartum recommendations in the U.S., I've heard that cesarean section and administration of intravenous cytobidine is no longer recommended for certain HIV-infected women during labor and delivery. Why, why is that? Where did the change come from? Well, um, I think obviously initially the interventions uh, were, uh, were, were put in uh, quite strongly uh, and that, that effect resulted in uh, excellent sort of reduction uh, as demonstrated. But then afterwards, we're sort of in the process of what I call fine-tuning. And uh, quite a lot of evidence sort of emerged, uh, mainly from Europe. So Tariq presented some data in 2011, where you can see uh, from this chart here that uh, compared to uh, elective C-section and vaginal delivery, rates of transmission were just sort of 0 0.8, 0 0.9%. There wasn't really very much difference compared to having an emergency cesarean section. And these were sort of uh, women who had received a combination antiretroviral therapy. And that was sort of reinforced by French data, where again, there was sort of no difference between an elective or a, or a vaginal delivery uh, amongst women whose viral loads were less than 1,000 copies per ml. But they were a little bit higher amongst women who, who required an emergency cesarean section. So that's where the evidence uh, came in that if mum was well controlled, was following up with her obstetric provider, uh, taking combination antiretroviral therapy, and she uh, was virologically suppressed beneath the level of detection, but here sort of less than a thousand copies, then the chances of uh, transmission were equivocal if she gave birth vaginally compared to mum's who had an elective cesarean section. And to reinforce that issue, Athena Curtis um, had looked at four cycles and looked at sort of the effects of uh, cesarean section on mum, because this can also be associated with infections in her and surgical trauma and so on and so forth. And so uh, based on the fact that uh, rates were equivocal anyway, you didn't want to uh, put mum at any further risk in terms of infection and trauma and hemorrhage and so on and so forth. And so all of that led to uh, the recommendation that if, the viral, if there was virologic suppression, then we could uh, perhaps uh, not have to uh, recommend cesarean section. Now, in terms of the use of intravenous AZT, there, there, again, there was some French data, and this was published about three years ago. Um, just over 11,500 women um, uh, delivered between 1997 and 2010 in France. Um, importantly, if you look at the middle blocks here, uh, the rates of transmission were 0.6% amongst mums who had IVAZT, but had adequate virologic suppression antenatally, and was zero amongst those mums who had no IVAZT. Uh, and when their viral when their viral load was between four to nine hundred four hundred to nine hundred and ninety-nine, just less than a thousand, rates of transmission were again higher amongst mums who, who received IVAZT and again was zero amongst mums who didn't receive IVAZT. And so based on that, 
the recommendations from the Department of Health and Human Services in these guidelines that are uh, updated annually for prevention of multi-child transmission recommend continued combination antiretroviral regimen during labor and delivery. And that if mum receives combination antiretroviral therapy and her viral load is less than a thousand copies near delivery, that the addition of intravenous zidovudine is not required. Uh, that the viral load, on the other hand, if it's greater than a thousand near delivery or unknown, that in that instance, IVAZT would be recommended in addition to uh, a combination antiretroviral regimen. And if viral load is greater than a thousand copies near delivery, a scheduled cesarean section at 38 weeks is recommended. It certainly sounds from this as if finding those mothers early, and you talk a lot about adolescent mothers, mm -hmm. and getting them into care and getting that viral load down is the essential component to making this go more smoothly. And that's, that reflects uh, what the... Uh, the CDC guidelines and the AAP guidelines in terms of screening all women back in 1995 uh, who uh, were pregnant, uh, ideally in the first trimester and in most settings in the, in the US uh, in the third trimester, repeat testing in the third trimester, was going to be a critical component to be able to initiate some of these interventions. Yeah. And then there was sort of more data, uh, and the, this was published in, 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 in the mid-90s on the effects of prolonged rupture of membranes, uh, and the fact that if mums came in with a rupture of membranes, the longer those membranes were, ru ru were ruptured and you didn't affect a, a delivery, the more likely uh, you were to uh, transmit virus to the baby. Now, obviously, that's an obstetric decision, uh, but... Uh, that's also uh, something to take into consideration with the concern for ascending uh, infection. So where did the evidence for the current U.S. DHHS uh, guidelines on postnatal prevention come from? So uh, obviously from the PACTG076 study um, uh, that we talked about earlier, uh, and that zidovudine prophylaxis can, could be continued for four to six weeks. We generally recommend six weeks in the U.S., although in, in Europe we, uh, we, uh, they have moved over to four weeks. Now, at that time, uh, providers were giving zidovudine orally to the baby every six weeks, but you can actually give it, uh, sorry, every six hours, uh, but you can actually give uh, zidovudine every 12 hours, um, and that's what we've, uh, we've switched over to. Now, the other critical determinant in this, and this was Nancy Wade's data uh, published in 1998, really sort of showed that you've got to get the medications in earlier. Uh, now, this was sort of uh, uh, data demonstrating uh, the risk of transmission uh, at 48 hours, uh, at 48 hours after birth, which had gone up to about 9.2%. Uh, but if you delayed uh, more than three days of that, your rates of transmission went up to 18.4%. That's almost double. No, that, that is double. So the guidelines now in the U U.S. sort of uh, say that it's important to start postnatal prophylaxis ideally within 24 hours, 12 hours if you can. And then uh, more recently, 
um, Karen Nielsen Sainz and colleagues uh, working with uh, the HPTN 040 study um, addressed the question of should we be adding another drug, especially in high risk deliveries? And high risk deliveries, we've generally uh, view as situations where the viral load is a thousand, greater than a thousand copies or expected to be greater than a thousand copies if the mum hasn't had any prenatal care. And so they did a, a multinational study uh, with three countries, Brazil, South Africa, and the United States, and they had three arms. Uh, these were all high-risk deliveries. Babies received zidovudine prophylaxis uh, in one arm alone for six weeks. In another arm, they received zidovudine in three doses of nevirapine, which is a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. And then in another arm, they received lamivudine and the protease inhibitor nelfinavir for two weeks in addition to zidovudine. And they looked then at sort of the outcomes. And what these investigators uh, were able to sort of demonstrate was that rates of in utero infection were slightly higher um, in the arm that received zidovudine prophylaxis alone uh, and were a bit lower in those where babies received either zidovudine or nevirapine or zidovudine, lamivudine and nelfinavir. But importantly, when we looked at intrapartum infection, sort of infection, around that time of delivery, there were significant differences between arms two and three compared to arms one where just zidovudine was, was being given. And these differences uh, were, sign were significant statistically. Um, however, uh, arm three was not, was, uh, not recommended based on the fact that more hematologic toxicity was observed uh, in infants who were in this group. And so uh, based on this, the current guidelines from the DHHS um, recommend uh, standard infant prophylaxis of mothers receiving combination antiretroviral regimens of zidovudine, four milligrams per kilo twice a day for four or six weeks. Um, but that if there is a high-risk delivery where mum hasn't received prenatal care, or if um, mum has a viral load near the time of delivery greater than 1,000 copies per ml, that three doses of nevirapine should be given, uh, ideally at birth and then with 48 hours later and then 96 hours after the second dose. And these are the, the doses in the slide. So what about breastfeeding? in the United States. What are the recommendations here? Well, uh, the AAP um, don't recommend breastfeeding um, regardless of maternal viral load. Um, they, because uh, formula feeding is readily available and we have clean water, uh, that, uh, that becomes less of a, an issue. But this is very specific to the United States and many Western settings. Uh, and uh, certainly not in uh, many other settings in the world. So I think I'm going to have a summary slide here uh, of the recommendations in the US and in many Western settings that all pregnant women should be tested for HIV in the first trimester and again at the end of the third trimester 
and that women with no antenatal care should receive a rapid test so that the provider uh, can determine within minutes if uh, HIV infection is an issue with uh, those who haven't had prenatal care. That they, sh they should receive treatment for HIV if they test positive so that the plasma viral load is undetectable at delivery. That uh, cesarean section be offered and IVAZT be offered if your viral maternal viral load is greater than a thousand copies or if there's prolonged rupture of membranes in certain circumstances. That baby should receive postnatal prophylaxis, ideally within 12 to 24 hours of birth. That in the US, breastfeeding should be avoided and that suitable alternatives should be offered. And that providers should inquire about the practice of pre-mastication and counsel HIV-infected carers about more safe, uh, safer feeding practices. And that infants born to mothers with no prenatal care or a viral load greater than a thousand copies um, should their postnatal regimen should include zidovudine and also oral nevirapine at least three doses uh, and that infants should receive testing um, at birth within 14 to 21 days of life but four to six weeks and at three to six months and with that we've seen a nice drop off as we talked about in terms of uh, infection rates this is great news for the U.S. and Europe, but I want to take you back to your first experience in India in the 1990s. What are your recommendations globally, particularly in resource-poor uh, countries where uh, the viral loads may be very high, where the resources for interventions may not uh, be quite the same? Uh, what are mothers supposed to do to protect their children there? Well, um, this is a critical question, and you know, when I, to maybe to answer this, um, I'm going to sort of give a quote from uh, Bude Sylvia Taylor, an 11-year-old Nigerian born free of HIV, speaking to world leaders in New York in 2010, said that no child should be born with HIV. No child should be an orphan because of HIV. Uh, no child should die due to lack of access uh, to treatment. I think never really a truer word was said, in my opinion. So there are uh, obviously uh, issues. Many women uh, are going to breastfeed, and those are certainly the guidelines from the World Health Organization uh, in terms of the in in the setting of HIV, maternal HIV infection, and that's completely understandable because breastfeeding provides optimal nutrition, uh, and in settings where water sources and there are dangers with formula, uh, this is indeed the correct thing to do. But prolonged breastfeeding, nevertheless, is associated with a 10 to 15% increased risk of HIV transmission. And that means that uh, interventions have had to take place which could prevent mother-to-child transmission in, um, uh, in those settings. So the first really nice bit of evidence came from Laura Gway and Philippa Musoki working in uh, Uganda. They published uh, in The Lancet in 1999, where they uh, were able to demonstrate that giving just one dose of nevirapine to mum and one dose postnatally to baby had a dramatic reduction in mother-to-child transmission rates in a breastfeeding cohort, and that this reduction actually continued, uh, up, this was sustained up to uh, 18 months. And so that uh, 
got the world excited. This was the time of the um, the Durban AIDS conference, and there was tremendous excitement that here was an intervention that could be applicable um, to uh, resource poor settings. And then not too long after that, Mark Lallemont, um, uh, working here actually um, uh, with Dr. Ken McIntosh in Boston, uh, produced some very nice data, um, sort of talking about the benefits of giving nevirapine, again, two doses of uh, nevirapine, short course, or short course zidovudine, um, and that uh, either a single dose to mum or baby was even more efficacious than giving zidovudine alone. So that began sort of a study, that, that began uh, these two studies from uh, uh, Laura Gway and Mark Lollamon really uh, began the, the, the study and the science of providing prophylaxis in breastfeeding populations. Not too a uh, few years later, Taha Taha, working in Malawi, uh, was able to look at three arms and look at the effects of nevirapine to breastfeeding infants and to give nevirapine for 14 weeks. And again, uh, compared to the control arm, the investigators were quite nicely able to demonstrate that postnatal prophylaxis for two weeks, at least um, uh, during the breastfeeding period, was associated with a reduction in mother-to-child transmission um, shown in the figures, if you look at, say, nine months, the figures in the control arm were 10.6%, but 5% for the extended nevirapine arm, and with nevirapine and zidovudine, 6.4%. Uh, so clearly there was going to be some benefits about providing antiretroviral therapy postnatally to babies um, who were being breastfed. So just to, to clarify, uh, you talked about a single dose and then you talked about a prolonged dose, and it was 14 weeks. Is that, that correct, that you would, the baby would be taking daily for 14 weeks? Yes, to 14 weeks, yeah. yeah. We'd like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. When you respond, can you please leave your city and country location? The question is this. In low-resource settings, the recommendation currently is that mothers continue to breastfeed even if they are HIV positive. Tell us a little bit about the experience you're having in your setting with maintaining breastfeeding in the face of maternal HIV infection. So what about maternal health? What was being done to keep the mothers healthy during and after pregnancy? Are there any trials to show that giving antiretrovirals to the mothers during breastfeeding uh, and not only keep them healthy, but also uh, doing better with nursing their infants? Yeah, this is a critical component. We really need to address the, uh, not only sort of, it's fantastic that we prevented mother-to-child transmission, but uh, keeping mums healthy as well is so critical to uh, newborn health, um, pediatric health, which runs right the way through to adolescence and early adulthood. And so uh, one of the really important studies that actually came out from investigators from Boston um, who were working uh, amongst a group in Botswana 
Roger Shapiro and others, they sort of published the Mabana study um, in uh, 2007. And here they sort of had co cohorts which were provided with uh, combination antiretroviral regimens. Um, and importantly, in the three arms, uh, the mothers maintained good virologic suppression beneath 400 copies, beneath the level of detection. So that was really great to see because that meant that they were going to be they were healthy during, uh, during pregnancy and during breastfeeding. But importantly also, uh, there were very few transmission events. There was sort of 1% overall transmission in the infants over six months. Um, and so this really sort of showed that uh, virologic, maternal virologic suppression during a period of breastfeeding was associated with a significant reduction. These were the lowest rates of mother child transmission in a breastfeeding population that was recorded. And also importantly, that the regimens were safe and well tolerated um, for both women and their breastfeeding uh, infants. And so uh, the conclusion um, was uh, from the group was that maternal combination antiretroviral therapy from early in the third trimester of pregnancy through six months of breastfeeding is a safe and very effective strategy for preventing mother-to-child transmission while allowing for the benefits of breastfeeding. There is one worry that came through, and this was published more recently um, from the same group, which is that although we're now seeing a number of uh, exposed but uninfected babies um, from Botswana. Some of these babies are dying uh, sooner than we would expect. These exposed, HIV exposed, uninfected babies who remain uninfected um, constituted um, about 38% of deaths compared to uh, babies who were in the control arm who were not HIV exposed. And that is now an emerging area in terms of why HIV-exposed, uninfected babies are dying at uh, such striking numbers. And we don't quite know yet why. Um, in a, the conclusion, the follow-up conclusion from this fantastic news that was published in 2007 uh, to this particular uh, piece of evidence is that in a programmatic setting with widespread maternal and uh, combination antiretroviral therapy available for mother and child. Exposed children contribute to more than half of the overall deaths. I mean, that's going to be an area of investigation. In that same uh, journal uh, published, um, which published Dr. Shapiro and his group, uh, that data, um, Charles Tassiler and others uh, in the BAN study uh, also uh, demonstrated the benefits of um, maternal antiretroviral prophylaxis and also postnatal prophylaxis uh, in infants receiving uh, uh, nevirapine, extended nevirapine for six months in a breastfeeding cohort. And you can see compared to the control arm, there are significant differences. As a side study, uh, there was also some work that showed that um, giving cotrimoxazole to these exposed uninfected babies was associated with improved survival. And again, in the context of the more recent work 
uh, from the Botswana group of increased infant mortality in exposed uninfected babies, we're going to have to see if there will be some benefit with this antibiotic. This is sort of the, the, um, uh, the alphabet soup of a number of studies that have taken place uh, in the past few, uh, decade and a half. The SWEN study, the PEPI Malawi study, the BAN, the ANRS study, the PROMISE study, Keisha Bora, and all of them are pointing to the same direction. And so where are we heading? Well, we're going towards option B+, which is sort of now recommending um, triple antiretrovirals antenatally as soon as mum is diagnosed. This is amazing stuff, considering where we were back in 1992, 93, uh, for all mums globally. Uh, and that, that should be continued not only up to, up to, up to the point of delivery, but uh, throughout life. And that uh, providing prophylaxis with nivirapine or zidovudine or a combination thereof uh, will uh, help significantly in offsetting transmission. And so these are the guidelines, the option B plus guidelines that have come through from the World Health Organization. We would like to turn now to the audience to ask a question. When you respond, can you please leave your city and country location? The question is this, we've presented to you uh, all of the recommendations for keeping mother healthy, having a uh, healthy uh, birth and delivery, and then keeping the baby healthy. Very complicated recommendations. What are the barriers that you're facing in your location to meeting these recommendations from the World Health Organization? And to a sort of almost to confirm that, we have the ongoing PROMISE trial from the NIH looking at 3,500 women in India, Malawi, South Africa, Tanzania, and a number of other countries. Uh, and again, I think we haven't got the data back yet from, uh, from this particular trial, but I think all the pointers are, are suggesting that there's going to be significant benefit. Um, the only one worry uh, well, apart from the other concern that I mentioned about uh, exposed uninfected newborns um, having inc uh, increased mortality, is that there are concerns about higher preterm uh, delivery um, in, uh, associated with antiretroviral therapy. Nevertheless, transmission rates are very low. And this is sort of uh, some of the data really highlighting that. The tentative conclusions currently from the PROMISE trial are that they support the WHO 2013 WHO recommendations for triple combination uh, regimens uh, in pregnancy for HIV-infected mothers. Um, but these regimens may be associated with a higher risk of moderate but not severe adverse maternal and pregnancy outcomes, including preterm birth and low birth weight. But the risk of um, in, of early deaths in the uh, combination arm um, is a bit anticipated in one of the particular arms and will require a little bit more uh, investigation. Nevertheless, at least globally, the, the recommendations are that PMTCT uh, is enhanced with early in initiation of combination antiretroviral therapy in pregnancy and if it's maintained throughout breastfeeding 
and indefinitely thereafter. That the fixed dose combination of one particular drug called tenofovir with uh, lamivudine and efavirenz is recommended by the World Health Organization. This benefits mum. This benefits, this uh, also uh, is associated with protection uh, from sexual transmission to partners. Um, people think that this is maybe costly in the short term, but far more cost effective over time. Uh, that breastfed infants should receive this prophylaxis with nevirapine daily for six weeks and that uninfected infants breastfeed for six months. That uh, cotrimoxazole may have uh, health benefits in exposed uninfected infants. But there are some safety concerns um, uh, on antiretroviral drug exposure. We're still unclear why exposed uninfected infants have higher mortality, but that is an area of investigation. Nevertheless, we've made tremendous progress on prevention and mother-to-child transmission in Western settings and globally over two decades, which is really amazing uh, considering where we started from and considering progress in many other conditions. It's taken the village to get this far. But there are still significant challenges, and we have to address these in the coming decades. Thank you. We'd like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. When you respond, can you please leave your city and country location? The question is this. In your setting, have you seen any examples of exposed, uninfected children in the HIV uh, situation who are having these uh, illnesses and early deaths? Rana, thank you so much for helping us understand this very, very important area, and thank you for all the work that you do uh, in this field. It's been a privilege talking to you and the group. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.